Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. On this episode, the hosts talk about books. How do we quote people we disagree with who may have some good things to say? Find out what they have to say about this touchy topic. And keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can download a free audio message from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Well, we're at one of my favorite activities uh, today, a book burning. And uh, those of you who know, I'm generally just very, very uptight about books and writers in general. And so I'm overseeing a PCA book burning. We're reading we're burning everything that I don't personally uh, agree with. And that even includes a few books that Carl has written, uh, like Republicrat. Um, we have a whole <laughs> section in the bonfire uh, dedicated to uh, to Republicrat. So Amy and Carl, of course, are with me. Um, uh, and just I think they're enjoying my own enthusiasm at seeing mm-hmm. so many uh, so many books be tossed. I didn't in know that to... dancing was involved. <laughs> oh yes, there's dancing. Chanting. Exactly. There's there's all kinds of pagan headgear that everybody's wearing. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things, obviously, we, we so, some interest has been generated over at uh, uh, the Mortification of Spin site on um, the fact that uh, we have in podcasts and in some of our posts that we've written. I'm saying we, I've probably taken most of the hits by actually naming someone that I uh, struggle with. Um, but but we've generated some interest over the issue of what's being written for evangelicals. Uh, we've asked, Carl, you and I have asked Amy, Amy, why is there so much junk written for women? And um, I, I wonder, how do we not only just discern the good from the bad, but also, is there a way to read a bad book um, to to try to cull something that might be helpful from it? Um, is it responsible to quote something, maybe lift a good quote from an otherwise not very good book? How do we recommend certain authors that we disagree with, but they might have a few helpful things? Is that even wise to do that? Um, that's kind of what we want to talk about today. And, and what you'll find as we move along is that this is it's entirely unscripted. This is a casual conversation, and so um, hopefully we won't have to edit uh, too deeply. Uh, we do plan, if necessary, to name some names. Uh, but Carl and Amy, um, help unpack this a little bit. How do we recommend stuff? How do we recommend or quote from people that we disagree with on a lot of things? And, and, and would we, say, avoid this author completely? That, that kind of thing. I think context is critical to the question you've asked, Todd. There's a sense in which one size is not going to fit all on this uh, on, the, on this question. I can envisage a situation in my church where somebody asked me for, you know, a book on the doctrine of God, mm-hmm. and you know, if it's somebody who's not read a huge amount of theology or somebody who's very young in the faith, somebody who needs a book that is jargon-free and just lays out the basics. I think I'd be very, very careful there to recommend a book to them where the author was somebody that I felt I could really trust. Right. For example, J.I. Packer. I might right. say, you know, go to J.I. Packer's Knowing God. If it was somebody who'd done quite a lot of theological reading and they were struggling with a particular issue, uh, let's say immutability or impassibility, mm-hmm. uh, 
And they were somebody who was, from my judgment, relatively mature in the faith. And the question they was a- were asking was a sophisticated one that indicated they'd done a lot of reading right. about the, the topic. Then I'm going to recommend to them the best book that I know of on the subject. Right. And on the issue like, say, immutability, it's probably going to be a book by somebody like Thomas Wayne Andy, who's a Roman Catholic author. Now, I'm not typically going to be telling my congregation, go out and read a lot of Catholic authors. But on specific issues where you need the very best book on the subject, Mm -hmm. I think I'm inclined to say the ordinary rules don't apply. Uh, You have to direct the person who's really struggling at a deep level with a complicated issue to a book that deals with that subject at sufficient depth, to an extent regardless of the person who wrote it. Uh, I, my, much of my research has been done on late 16th and 17th century reformed writers. And one of the things that interests me about those guys is they're very eclectic in the sources they use. They mm-hmm. quote a lot of medieval as well as patristic writers. Uh, men, they're quoting men for whom they have, clearly have respect, but with whom they would have significant disagreements. Right. But when they need the best argument on a particular point, they go to the best argument rather than to the author with whom perhaps they have most in common but whose arguments might be somewhat mediocre. So I think the the, the first question one has to ask oneself as a pastor when you're recommending reading books is who's asking about this book and at what stage in their their Christian life and thinking are they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amy, you've written two books. One, at least at the time of this recording, is in the process of... I guess final editing, right mm-hmm. before it's before it's sent out. Um, do you have a rule of thumb as far as quoting people that you don't? And, and we're not talking about we we don't you know I, I I can't think of a single person that I can imagine agreeing with one hundred percent of time all the time. Right. We're clearly talking about people who. Mm-hmm. Are are perhaps outside of our tradition theologically, um, but whoever who nevertheless we 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 can find some good things. Do you have do you have a rule of thumb in your first two books as to who you would be willing to quote and who you wouldn't be willing to quote because it might cause some maybe some confusion or a little some bit. I mean, I, I write at more of a popular level, right. so I know that some women who are reading my books maybe have. Um, you know, never really thought deeply about some of the theological topics that I bring up. So if, um, you know, if I'm going to write about something like the resurrection, let's say, um, and T. Wright's written some wonderful right. stuff, but I would be afraid to quote him just because mm-hmm. it might lead into some other doctrines. And, and I worry about the level of discernment that uh, women have now. And, and I wonder, you know, in listening to what Carl's saying, um, what was the, maybe the level of discerning, discerning what they're reading was a little better. I don't know, but, um, there was this case where when I wrote Housewife Theologian, it was like five years before it was actually published. And so I quoted from Jason Stillman. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a quote that I really liked. But then, of course, while it's going through the publishing process, he um, becomes a Catholic. <laughs> and uh, not many Protestants really had nice things to say about him at the time, too. And not so much the women who were going to be reading my book probably knew about that. But I thought about it and I, even more. I was a little embarrassed maybe that I had his name in there. But when I went back and, and read what I quoted from him, I liked it. Right. And I thought, you know, that was a good book, too, that I read, Dual Citizenship or something like that. So um, I kept it in there. Right. So, so there's, I don't have, like, certain guidelines, but there's a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. Carl, when, when you're preaching, 
um, if you ever have occasion to quote a particular theologian or a particular commentator or what have you, do you think through that? If I quote this person, I'm kind of concerned that maybe it would be seen as an endorsement of all they've written. Do you think through that much? Yeah, that's a good question. By and large, I don't do a lot of quoting in in the pulpit. Uh, so you just plagiarize. You just I, uh, you take I generally plagiarize. For, okay, yes, okay. yeah, great quotes from Shakespeare that I take credit for <laughs> yeah. and things like this. Now, typically, I don't quote a lot, but when I do, yes, I would certainly uh, want to think carefully because I think when you're when you're speaking from a pulpit, you have a limited period of time. You're not able often to nuance particularly right. what you want to say. So I would generally. Be very careful at that point. Now, I have quoted, just last week, uh, I quoted Blaise Pascal mm-hmm. from the pulpit, Roman Catholic author of the, the 17th century. Um, so I, I do quote when I find a particularly pithy statement right. that's going to be helpful to me. But on the whole, I, I avoid quoting uh, people from the pulpit. Yeah. If I did, I would want to think very carefully about whether I could get the same idea from a safe source, right. because if I can direct people to a to a, a, a source where they're less likely to be misled by other things mm-hmm. that person has read, mm-hmm. that's clearly preferable in a right. pastoral right. Uh, situation. Yeah. I know that there have been a few occasions when I've when I've quoted someone that I typically would not recommend, and I and I've said that I've said, you know what? Here's a quote, from, and I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I. I can't come Amy up with Bird one. Has Amy Bird has one. Amy Bird, yeah. I think I was said, there for that one. I've said, now, typically I don't recommend Amy Bird, but but she got this right. But there's been a couple <laughs> of occasions where it's been somebody that I wouldn't want people in my congregation running out to buy his book. However, I've, I've, I've and I've told him that. You know what? Here's a person. I don't recommend you read their stuff because there's some pretty fundamental disagreements. However, he gets this right. I don't do that much. I can think of a couple of times where I've done that. I think it's good to do some because sure. – it, it does encourage the congregation to um, read a little more widely um, to, and to yeah. use discernment while they're reading. Mm-hmm. It's easy to like villainize certain authors right. and say that, oh, they're a heretic. Yeah. And and then maybe they'll see them speaking somewhere or they'll read something of theirs and think, well, this this isn't so bad. Right. Right. And, and so it's good to recognize that they do say and write some good things that we can learn from and sharpen us in. And I think N.T. Wright's a good example there. Yes. Thinking back to many years ago when I taught at the University of Nottingham, one of my colleagues was a very radical Johannine scholar who was really aimed at essentially debunking the historicity of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I found uh, that when N.T. Wright's uh, books on big books mm-hmm. on Jesus and the people of God started to come out, they were amazing resources for me to be able to direct students to because Wright was engaging the kind of critical material that my colleague was writing at the appropriate level. Yeah, I couldn't fob him off, fob my students off, you know, Josh McDowell, evidence sure. that demands a verdict. Right. That wasn't going to cut it. N.T. Wright's scholarly stuff was fantastic yep. in that context. Yep. Now, uh, am I going to tell students to go away and read N.T. Wright on the messianic self-consciousness of Jesus? Probably not. But on issues of basic gospel historicity writes a very safe pair of hands and Richard Borkham I actually have less yes. issues with Richard Borkham theologically in general anyway but Richard Borkham's book on uh, Jesus and the Jesus eyewitnesses is a superb defense of the historicity of John and frankly if you're bright enough to read it you should read it rather than 
some of the more popular stuff that's out there because it will give you serious and substantial arguments uh, for defending defending what you believe. Yeah, you, uh, Amy and Carl, you've both mentioned N.T. Wright, and I think that, that he's a great example for our topic mm-hmm. precisely because he's a great scholar. You can learn a lot from him. My rule of thumb with N.T. Wright is that his big, thick books, as Carl's already alluded to, are more helpful than his thinner, more popular books. He gets into more theological problems with his thinner, more popular books, which in that case makes me even more concerned about him because the, the books that a layperson is more likely to pick up are going to be his more accessible pastoral type books exactly where he denies biblical inerrancy where he uh denies the historic uh, reformation understanding of of justification these are not small issues and because he's such a good writer and a gifted teacher and a persuasive man a less discerning reader i can understand would pick up one of those books and perhaps be persuaded now um, all three of us are part of confessional churches and Carl and I both have taken vows in our denominations, in our presbyteries, uh, to uphold certain doctrinal standards, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this is interesting because I find, I don't know what it's like in the OPC, but in the PCA, there's some divisions over over N.T. Wright. We've got some guys in the PCA that are fascinated with N.T. Wright, recommend N.T. Wright, um, <clears throat> recommend to their churches all of N.T. Wright's books. And my quandary in that is they're recommending specific books where N.T. Wright, for instance, denies biblical inerrancy, which they have vowed to uphold. And I wonder if that presents, I mean, for me, it would present a problem. But that's a, for me, that that that's an important ethical question to ask mm-hmm. is can I recommend unqualify in an unqualified way a book that denies biblical inerrancy that that at the very minimum calls into question a historical atom if not outright denies it that messes around with the doctrine of justification can i recommend that and really be acting faithfully to the vows i took curious as to see how you might answer that i think the question you asked todd goes back to the matter of context again the issue of uh, who's asking the question and to whom you're recommending the books and what qualifications you're, you're placing upon them. In some ways, the, the point you've raised is it's easier to deal with relative to non-Christian books in yes. that I'm very comfortable recommending some non-Christian books to congregants to read because they know they're non-Christian wow. books and aren't yeah. going to be misled mm-hmm. in, in that sort of grand way. So, for example, if somebody was asking me, what do I need to read about how culture shapes the way I think, the, I'd say Neil Postman, mm-hmm. uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death is a very basic right. text there. doesn't worry me, people reading Postman, because they know he's not writing from a Christian perspective. When you're dealing with people like N.T. Wright, or even more with many of the the good Roman Catholic authors out there who write very well on things like the doctrine of God, Mm -hmm. uh, or on um, matters of politics and natural law, I think then you get into a more complicated uh, situation. And and then I think, as I say, it comes down to to whom you're recommending the books and what qualifications are you placing upon your recommendations. Let me ask you a question. So, Carl, would you 
let's say your your church's website had a recommended reading section, as some churches' websites do. Um, would you have one of N.T. Wright's books, perhaps his book on justification or his book where he deals specifically with the doctrine of Scripture, where he denies inerrancy, among other things, would you have those as recommended books on your church's website? No, because that takes the books out of context. Right. The web is whatever context the person checking your web page is coming from, of which I have no control and of which I have right. no knowledge. I would want to make sure that what was recommended on my church website accurately reflected the the position of my church. Right. So, for example, we might well... I'm, showing my ignorance of my own website here, but we might well <laughs> recommend Kevin DeYoung's uh, The Good News we almost, right. we, we almost Forgot as a guide to the faith. We wouldn't recommend uh, simple, was it simple Christianity by N.T. Right. Wright yes. simply because I would have no way of nuancing that recommendation. Yeah. But I would not have any problem in some circumstances in handing simple Christianity over to somebody and giving them yes. a broader context for, for reading the book. Good, good, yeah. Well, I think what a big problem that we have is within our own denominational affiliations, there's authors out there who may be teaching differently than mm -hmm. what they actually confess in their denomination. Right. And so that's another big qualification, um, especially like in... Um, you know, in the PCA, there's a lot of different stances now on yes. on certain doctrines, and in the Southern Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. um, you know, we we brought up Beth Moore in a, in another podcast, and in some ways, I recommend for women to to read her with discernment mm -hmm. to then maybe sharpen their own discernment skills. You know, how do you think? that this claim that she's making lines up with your view on the sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. And sometimes that that leads them to then go into their Bible and to study that doctrine more. And then that could lead into maybe a teaching with them on um, the doctrine of the word of God. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Amy, you, you, you bring up uh, denominational standards, and I think this is a really good point and, and one that, that concerns me. I, I was raised Southern Baptist. I was Southern Baptist until maybe six years ago when I was 40 or 41. How old am I now? For, when I was 41, I... You look about older 55. Than <laughs> and one of the things that um, really caused me a lot of stress is that Broadman and Holman, which is the Southern Baptist Publishing House, um, Lifeway, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they produce Bible study materials, and they have... Uh, bookstores, you'll see Lifeway bookstores, those are Southern Baptist Convention-owned bookstores, they sell products, they sell books and materials that directly contradict mm -hmm. specific doctrinal stands of the Southern Baptist Convention. So, for instance, uh, un unless they, this is making a little bit of news, I, I, un unless they change this very soon, you can go to Lifeway stores and buy materials from T.D. Jakes who is a oneness Pentecostal, uh, prosperity, gospel, teaching, word, faith, false teacher. And yet you can find his materials on the Lifeway website and in Lifeway bookstores. But you see now that there's a big reaction. Uh, people a, are starting to yep. really speak up about this exactly. and they're angry. Yep, they're angry and they're justifiably angry because they go into their Southern Baptist bookstores and see books like Jesus Calling, which 
is a roundabout attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Southern Baptists have officially denied continuing revelation. Mm-hmm. And she's PCA, right? Sarah well, I, I know at least her husband was. I don't know what their current status is. They might Todd be squirming. Todd they, squirming. They, they, yeah. they may well be OPC. I don't know. I've never seen him go that color before. <laughs> um, thanks, uh, uh, Amy, for that. You were anytime, really anytime. helpful just then. Um, but uh, but but yeah. So so here you have. In the case of the Southern Baptist Convention, materials being sold in their bookstores that directly contradict stated doctrinal positions that they have. And the and, and the tricky place that places a Southern Baptist pastor who really upholds, for instance, the sufficiency of Scripture, who really does properly abominate things that T.D. Jakes writes, is he's got people in his church, and I know this because I've been there, who come to him and say, but this person's Southern Baptist but Southern Baptists sell this, but I got this from the Lifeway website. Mm. And so the denomination at that point is undermining some of its own pastors. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was a soapbox. Yeah, throw that one in the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that brings up a broader point, and that is the issue of the impact of the market on Christian Mm. reading habits. Mm. Mm, Uh, There has been a lot of junk published in the last 10 years and if i can if this doesn't sound like an oxymoron there's been a lot of orthodox junk published Mm. in the Mm. last 10 years simply to keep the market turning over i mean i think comes a comes a point at which we don't need another book on predestination yes we don't need another book on justification we don't need superstar pastor x opining on every subject under the sun because he's not qualified to do that Mm. and he's going to produce mediocre books but the problem you then have, of course, is that you have huge publishing companies the market demands built it. upon constantly reinventing the marketplace. And I think one of the things that is rarely discussed in Christian circles is the responsibility that publishers have not to publish junk, and dare I say it, not to publish the tenth book by a particular person on a subject they've written on ten times before. Uh, the market has been flooded with so say good literature, actually I think the market has become saturated with mediocre literature yeah. in many places. Yeah. And of course the, the problem is is that they're gonna continue to produce bad books because the bad books are the ones that sell the best. If you look at the Christian bestsellers list, as we have pointed out before, they're almost always all bad books. Almost always. But I don't think you have to go to the Christian bestseller list for this. I think you can go even within our own little world and Mm -hmm. see that some pastors have become brand names. No doubt. So if Pastor X writes on topic Y, it's going to sell far better than somebody who actually knows about topic Y, but nobody's ever heard of. And again, it brings me back to my own old soapbox, and that is the the stadium venue ecumenism, the stadium venue driving of the theological shape of evangelicalism, which you know, I first spoke out about five or six years ago and frankly is worse now than it was then because the people with a vested interest in not hearing the criticisms are the people who are in control of these institutions. Mm-hmm. And then if you do qualify someone you recommend, um, let's say me publicly as a blogger or an author or on this podcast, um, it's almost looked at as so horrible to critique. And right. so that it's 
it's viewed as especially I think coming from a woman as saying something mean and you right. can't do that. Right. Yeah. 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 It, people are very, very sensitive about this. And, you know, if you're going to write books and Carl and Amy, you both write books. I don't because I'm too sensitive and I couldn't handle the criticism. <laughs> I thought it was because you couldn't write. But that's, uh... <laughs> or you could read my blog just posts and just conclude them. that the poor boy can't write. But um, but is it's true that if you're going to write, and both of you know this, you just have to understand that you will be criticized and that that's okay well, because that's, you're putting your stuff out there publicly. I like it when my books get burned, but only if they're, <laughs> only if they're library copies because the library then has to buy another copy <laughs> and I get more royalties. Absolutely. Well, I mean, even in the university, like if you take an art class or if you take a writing class, part of your grade is your ability to critique. Yeah. And um, if it's a piece of art or if it's a poem that you're submitting, um, you need to be able to put your work out in front of the mm. class and sit there and listen to the critique. Yeah. And I've learned from some of the critique of my writing, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. Mm-hmm. And then some of it I, I'll disagree with, but some of it I'm like, you know what? They have a point. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of the things, Carl, that you and I have talked about as pastors on this issue that Amy brings up is if – if you're going to write books, obviously you want people in my church to buy them because your book is being marketed to people in my church and in Carl's church and in the church that Amy attends and this kind of thing. And so therefore, because your stuff is out there publicly being marketed, if it's not good, I'm going to have to say something about it mm-hmm. because that's part of my responsibility yeah. as a pastor. And Christians shouldn't fear that. I think there's always a balance in the Christian faith and has been historically the between the spirit of Catholicity, yeah. where we want to recognize the, the breadth of the Christian faith and recognize there is room for diversity of opinion, even on some fairly serious things. Not all serious things, but some serious things. There is room for diversity of opinion, baptism being an obvious one. We don't want to denigrate the Christian faith of our Baptist brothers right. and sisters, even as we respectfully and firmly disagree with their sincerely held convictions on these matters. So there's always a balance there. What we need to avoid is is either the hypercritical culture where if I don't agree with you 100%, then you don't belong to the church, period, or uh, how dare I raise any questions about anything you've said because that is harsh and judgmental. I think the, the development of appropriate Christian character involves the development of small-d discernment and proper critical reading skills. And Carl, before you wrap us up, um, just just because there's a bit of irony, earlier in in this particular podcast, you you mentioned Wine Andy Andy being a a Roman Catholic. Uh, When I read his book, uh, Does God Suffer? That's one of the things that made me a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a Roman Catholic, and he wrote this brilliant book on the doctrine of impassibility. I'd never been taught about impassibility before. And that drove me to start studying and reading the classic doctrine of God with those classic uh, attributes of God, impassibility being one of them. And that book was a major turning point for me, driving me to the Reformed faith. And he's a Roman Catholic. And I would recommend that to anybody who wants to read a very intelligent and careful book on that doctrine. So so we 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 don't have a problem recommending people that we disagree with so long as we have an opportunity to put it in its context. 
And I think that's a great note to end on, Todd. I mean, books are a great gift. I love reading books. I've enjoyed them for as long as I can remember. I read as widely as I possibly can. But I've tried over the years to learn to read with with charitable discernment. And I think that should be something to which uh, all of us as Christians strive uh, to aspire. Um, Don't waste your life reading the second, third, fourth best book on on any subject. Always try to go for the best book you can. So signing us out until the next time you can join us, this is the Mortification of Spin Tea. Thanks for joining us. You let everybody know But don't play with me Cause you're playing with fire Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to download the audio message, Significant Theological Works in the Past 50 Years. In this message, published systematic theologian Douglas Kelly helpfully explains those books that have been most influential in studying theology. Next time, the team interacts with some recent teachings on quote-unquote true worship. What looks like a little campaign relative to what they call gospel-centered worship. It's predicated on the idea that apparently there are very few churches out there engaging in gospel-centered worship, which, uh, if, if true as an allegation, of course, would be uh, uh, a breathtakingly horrific kind of situation to exist in. Check back in for that next time. We'll see you then. Todd, you're laughing. I've got to ask Don't you. Don't waste your life. What it's a, title what of a book. What? <laughs> I, I just... uh, We're whispering now. Oh. <laughs> this is descending into chaos. No, you, you just... Uh, Don't waste I... your life is the title of a John Piper book. All right. So, just, hey, I've just said something positive about John Piper. I hope all of our listeners out there... Was, I don't always critique John Piper. I also appreciate some of the titles of his books. Uh,